This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. They were all so uncomfortable with us giving them hugs. And one of them said to my friend, um, I think this is what firefighters must feel like. <laughs> I think I think police officers don't usually get hugged to say thank you. Um, but it was it was an amazing experience. Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly, your emergency management podcast. And this week we are talking about the hidden or the invisible injuries that uh, occur uh, during traumatic events. And this week we have with us uh, Manya, uh, who was sitting in the grandstands across from where the first bomb exploded uh, during the Boston Marathon. Now, Manya was not physically injured, uh, but she still had mental scars that came away from that day. And this is Manya's story uh, and how she is helping others cope with that traumatic injury that is not physical, but psychological. This interview is pretty intense at times. So I just want you guys that were involved in the Boston uh, Marathon bombing and or uh, in the response um, to to just realize that this is going to be it's going to be emotional at some point. Um, so just be aware of that. Now on to the interview. Manya, welcome to Ian Weekly. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Manya, you, you and I were talking earlier and, and trying to, you know, learn a little bit about your situation and, and where you were, and it's an amazing story. Um, just share a little bit about that day on, on that when you were there at the at the Boston Marathon. Yes. So the marathon finish line is not far from where I live in Boston, and that day is such a big party. So I always take it off and go to the finish line to cheer on the runners. I rarely know anybody who is running. I just like being part of the celebration and take my responsibility as a spectator near the finish line very seriously, you know, yelling and screaming and calling people's names if they have them on their T-shirt. In 2013, I was lucky enough to get seats in the bleacher seats at the finish line, so even closer to where people are finishing. And that's where I was with some of my friends at 2.49 when the first bomb went off directly across the street from me. So, and, oops, go, please go. And I was um, frozen in place watching the bomb go off, and I knew it was a bomb. I don't really know how, I just knew it was a bomb. Yeah, that's really an important uh, distinction right there because one of the things that we talk about is the, the concept of uh, the normalcy bias to where when something goes on, 
you know, you think it's uh, something that's not. So, for instance, you know, when you hear shots fired, people think it's fireworks or, or, or other things. Or sometimes you hear things that you think is the one thing and it's not the other. But So you're saying that you knew it was a bomb right away. Did the people around you realize it was a bomb as well? I've heard stories from a lot of people that day, and people have told me they didn't think it was a bomb. A lot of people seem to think perhaps it was an electrical transformer that was um, had blown up. Somebody that I was with actually thought it was a water cannon that had gone off. Um, and so she didn't realize what it was, I think, until the second bomb went off, and then we realized it wasn't some sort of accident. So one of the things that that we talked about is the fact that there's the physical trauma with the from the bombs, you know, the people getting injured from from the explosion and the shrapnel and whatnot. And then there's a psychological trauma from being there proximity wise and also uh knowing people that were were involved. Walk me through the psychological trauma. So in my case, immediately following, I was, um, you know, in that week afterwards, I was struggling to sleep. When I did sleep, I would wake up with nightmares. I had trouble concentrating. It was very difficult to do my work. Um, I work from home, so I wasn't in an office with anybody else's kind of input. So I had to motivate myself to work, which was very difficult. I wasn't doing a good job taking care of myself in terms of eating, anything like that. Um, And pretty early on, I started having what I learned later were called intrusive thoughts. And that was sort of being in in a place and imagining that it exploded and that all the people around me were killed and injured and that I was okay, but somehow I was once again in this place where a bomb went off. And my body, each time that would happen, would react as if there really had been a bomb exploding and I was frozen in place again and, you know, heart pounding, all of those feelings. And then I would, it felt like I woke up and would open my eyes and realize that, nope, I'm still in the subway station and everything's fine, or I'm still in the theater and everybody's still watching the show. There's nothing really wrong. And those, the intrusive thoughts in particular were quite frightening because I'd never had anything like that and didn't understand what was happening or how to deal with them. So are those like, um, like dreams? Like, do you see that or is it more of a thought process? I would describe my intrusive thoughts as a waking dream. So as vivid as some dreams I have when I'm asleep and but just happening when I'm wide awake. And it it felt to me as if I was really, as if what was happening. So I, it felt to me the time when I was standing in the subway and it looked like the train had exploded and people around me were injured and dead. It felt to me like that was really happening. I was standing in the subway station and it felt like, um, you know, it was hot and 
smoky and all of those things. It was as if all of my senses had been hijacked and thought this thing was really happening. Wow. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty deep right there. Um, so at what point did you say, okay, I need to, I need to seek out counseling or help or find people who are doing this as well? I sought out mental health treatment actually just a week after um, the bombing. And I've learned since that time that it's really unusual to seek formal mental health treatment so quickly. In my case, I was feeling so distressed and, and so confused about what was happening to me. And I knew that, you know, a trained mental health professional could probably guide me. So a week after we had a moment of silence at 2.49 the following Monday. And it was not very long after that that I was on the phone to my doctor's office asking if I could see someone in their mental health department. And that's when I learned that you can get an emergency mental health appointment if you need one. Um, they got me in the next day. And it was a few weeks after that that I realized I still needed help. I still didn't feel I was... Um, recovering in the way that I wanted to. And that's when I met a Red Cross volunteer who was handing out information from the Massachusetts Office of Victim Assistance. And it was a list of resources and it included mental health resources. And that's how I connected with a trauma counselor and then eventually with a, a group um, that that trauma counselor led to help people who'd been at the finish line. Do you think that the the groups are important yes the groups are incredibly important even though i had been at the marathon with friends we all dealt with it differently and i didn't feel that i could connect with them in particular about the kinds of distress i was feeling and i felt very isolated after the experience because we weren't hearing stories of the people with psychological injuries on the news. Um, my civic leaders were not talking about it. The focus was much more on the physical side of the event. I felt very isolated. Getting to go to one of those groups and meeting other people who had been at the finish line, who were not physically injured, but who experienced similar kinds of distress was huge for me. Um, I realized I wasn't alone. And, you know, it wasn't just me that was having a problem. So, you know, we always talk about the, the victims, if you will, of, of these events and the numbers of people who were killed and in, or injured, for that matter, physically. Um, but we don't talk about the number of, of psychological injuries that, that occur. Um, is that something that we should really be, as emergency managers, and, and first responders and, and public safety people, should we be really thinking about all of those that weren't physically injured those days? Yes, absolutely. I think it's critical that we think about the people who were impacted even without physical injuries. Um, the, there's a statistic that says for mass violence, which is similar to a natural disaster, that for every one physical injury, there will be between four and 50 psychological injuries, uh, four and 50 people who have psychological injuries. So the scale 
can be much larger when you're looking at the mental health impacts. And I think from my perspective, what I was looking for early on watching the news conferences and looking to my mayor was validation that my experience was real. And by not counting the number of people who might have been psychologically traumatized, by not talking about it on the news, that was very isolating. So personally, I would love to see that you know ticker at the bottom of the news saying the number of people who were killed, the number of people physically injured, and the number of people potentially traumatized mm. by this. I have a, a good friend of mine, the guy who I started with, his name is Aaron Siebert, and he has a he has a podcast as well called Combat Vet Vision, and he really goes into PTSD, and he runs some PTSD groups uh, here in Southern California. Uh, he's part of the PTSD Foundation of America for for combat veterans, and he he, he talks about how in some cases uh, people who come to the combat uh, PTSD groups, and although they might be suffering from issues, uh, PTSD is talking about when I say issues that they don't mm-hmm. that they don't really fit in that group and they can actually do more psychological harm to that themselves. Um, is there some of that going on as well with what some of the groups that you're with or people that weren't really there at the finish line or, or and they come in because they, f- they feel they had some trauma. Is, is, is there any risk of that? In my experience, we didn't have anybody in any of my groups who uh, came in for other reasons they were only people who had been at the finish line. I have heard of those kind of stories. And I know that mental health professionals do worry after an event like this um, about what they refer to as creating victims. Mm. Um, but something like the marathon bombing, a you know mass tragedy like that, you can expect that maybe 10 to 20% of the people who experienced it could be diagnosed with something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Like they have symptoms that are enough to be truly diagnosable. But that number means that, you know, about 80% of the people aren't going to be diagnosed with that and aren't experiencing symptoms at that level. So most people, you know, can heal on their own without necessarily seeking formal mental health treatment. And there's a fine balance between, um, letting people know that they've been traumatized and it's okay if they need help. And then somehow telling people that they have been traumatized and sort of turning them into victims when they didn't feel like it in the first place. Mm. That's a really complex um, calculation that I don't fully understand as, as a survivor myself. I'm not a mental health expert, but what I've read is there, there is a concern in making sure you talk about the trauma in a way that is inclusive of those people who experienced it, but also doesn't sort of catch people who weren't necessarily traumatized, but make them think they were. Right. Well, I want to take a quick break here. When we come back, I kind of want to talk about um, those of us that weren't even in the area, but still are feeling some of the effects. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed 
mesh networking allowing emergency communication even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Welcome back from the quick break. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please reach out to our sponsors because without them, we can't do what we're doing here today. So before we went on a break, I, I was wanted to go into the fact of like, post 9-11, uh, we were talking about some people who were even here in Los Angeles that that witnessed it on TV. Maybe they had friends or family that were in New York and were feeling the, the effects of, of that. Can people who weren't even near there have some of the same traumas that, say, people that were there? Have you heard anything about that? Yes, absolutely. People who are not physically in that location can get mental health symptoms, even as much as something diagnosable like PTSD. Um, the, your connection to the incident doesn't necessarily have to be physical. You don't necessarily have to be there. But if you know someone who in, was involved, that can be a challenge. They've actually done studies, um, especially in New York after 9-11, and they did find that people across the country, a small percentage of people, did have symptoms of PTSD as a result of the event. How you're affected by something like this is so individual for each of us, and it depends on your past traumas that you've experienced, your support network, all of those kinds of things. If you've had PTSD before or you've had a significant trauma before, something like a 9-11 or a Boston Marathon bombing can be very triggering. So it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to be there to get some of these symptoms. Wow. So, so because of television, we could be spreading uh, some of this trauma across the country and the world, huh? Absolutely. And one of the things they told myself and our, and our groups that we were with and has been, um, we get reminders of every once in a while is to limit our exposure to the news um, and, you know, try not to just glue ourselves to the TV or the computer screen to watch these things. I know personally, I almost never watch the news anymore because I can find these anytime there's mass violence, it can be very triggering. No, it's true. I, 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 uh, I understand that for sure. Um, I mean, you know, it seems like there's something going around around the world, world every day. It's it's uh, it's definitely a uh, a small world now with with television and cable, and of course the 24-hour news cycle, and they they have to fill it with something. Um, so when when things like to happen in New York City, where the the guy drives the truck, you know, down the uh, bicycle path, or uh, other events such as the uh, route, the uh, I forget the name. Is it Route 91? Brian, was it the Route 91? The Okay, let me go. Like the shooting in, in Vegas. Um, are all these trigger points for, for people that have suffered a situation like you? I'm going to say yes, because I certainly found all of those very triggering, and I would imagine that other folks did as well. Um, it, I can just... In my case, I can imagine myself in that situation, and it takes me back to remembering how it felt when 
I was in danger. So I want to go back a little bit. So you were saying that you work at home. You didn't get out to an office um, after this occurred, and you felt isolated. Does somebody who works in an office situation, do you think that they um, have a little bit more of, I don't want to say support group because I'm not saying that you're not supported, but do they have a little bit more of of an outlet than somebody that works at home? And do we have to be concerned about those that are uh, non-traditional workers now? I think that we do have to be concerned about those who are non-traditional workers. One of the things that is most helpful for individuals after experiencing trauma is getting support, is having their experience and their feelings validated, but getting support. And whether that is through friends or family or coworkers. And I know in my case, I wanted, I was glad that I worked alone. I wanted to not be around people. And I think if I had had to go into an office, that would have been an additional layer of support, whether I knew it at the time or not. Um, But I do think in cases like this, we do need to pay attention to people who, for whatever reason, may not be working in an office or they may um, be isolated for some other reasons. I think it's important to find a way to reach out to our friends and neighbors in cases like that, just to make sure they know that they have the support. Yeah, I have a good friend of mine who uh, who works from home, and uh, you know, he was telling me that at some point he he uh, he was feeling like he didn't didn't want to be around people anymore because he uh, he he just didn't uh, didn't feel comfortable interacting with them. Did you feel the same way at all? In the days after the bombing, I felt probably everything you can imagine. I felt at one point that I needed to be in groups of people. And then I felt as if I didn't want to be near anybody. And so I would go out to walk and talk to the police officers who were guarding the crime scene and just get myself out there. Um, But I think because I, for me personally, because I didn't have an office or a kind of support network that was shaped like that, um, it was easier for me to isolate myself because I could just come home, turn off the phone and shut out the world. What was the manhunt like for you? The Friday after the bombing is, was the big, that was the day of the manhunt. It had started on Thursday night and the governor asked everybody to shelter in place. It was for the city of Boston. It was a voluntary order, but almost everybody adhered to it and the streets were quiet. And, uh, you know, I I believe they shut down the transportation network as well. I started the morning by watching the news because somebody had texted me what had happened overnight. And pretty early on in my watching the news, I realized I had to stop because I was making myself feel physically ill. So I turned off the news and actually had quite a productive day at work because I didn't check social media, nothing. I just focused on my work. And it was at the end of the day when somehow it reached me, I don't remember how, that it was over, 
it had been resolved. And I started hearing all of these cheers outside of my window, people yelling and screaming in jubilation. So I got dressed and I went outside and met some of my neighbors and discovered what, you know, they had um, captured one of them. And uh, we all just sort of walked around that evening and we ended up in the Boston Common. Everyone just so relieved to have have that over because the city had been so tense for that week. And I remember we all started hugging the Boston police officers who were there and telling them thank you um, for their service. And excuse me, they were all so uncomfortable with us giving them hugs. And one of them said to my friend, um, I think this is what firefighters must feel like. <laughs> I think, I, I think police officers don't usually get hugged to say thank you. Um, but it was, it was an amazing experience. Um, to be out there with everybody celebrating. Uh, yeah, that's uh, number one. That's a kind of much that made you feel a little bit better, you know. Just, just not not a lot, but I understand that. And then uh, uh, must have been wow. I can't even imagine putting myself in that in that situation right there. And whew, what a story! Wow. So now you you go around the country talking to uh, to groups um, about this. Uh, about your experience how, how can people find you they can visit me on my website which is maniachilinski.com and i talk about my experience i talk about resiliency um, i want to help people understand what it's like to experience a trauma like this and what we can do as employers as a community as emergency managers to help people who've experienced psychological trauma. Well, okay. Awesome. So make sure you guys, and, and by the way, everybody, I'm going to, like I always say, I'm going to have everything down in the show notes, all the, all the links uh, that you can to, to, to find Manya. Um, and, and look her up and, and look at her story. The story it's, it is definitely uh, uh, worth doing. So, and if you guys are looking for, for speakers, I, I, I definitely recommend having her come out and, and talk to your group. I talked to a bunch of people before um, this interview uh, in the emergency management space who've had you um, at their uh, events, and they're, they're really highly uh, appreciative of, of what you, you bring to the table uh, talking to emergency managers and public safety officials. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm so pleased to hear that. You know, it, my mission is to change how we talk about emotional and psychological trauma after these kinds of events and it means a lot to me that my message is getting through to these folks. So if you could talk to all of the emergency managers at one time, what would you say to them? I would say that um, it's important that we pay attention to people who've been emotionally and psychologically wounded. It is it's a real thing that happens to people. And when we don't get validation, it can add to our feelings of shame and guilt. And that can prevent people from getting help. Um, Cause we really feel, you know, we suffer on top of 
the emotional and psychological distress that we're feeling. And I want to make the invisible visible. I want us to be able to to talk about and treat emotional and psychological pain with the same care that we talk about physical pain and the physical aspects of traumatic events like a bombing or a shooting. Um, I want to be part of fixing that. Wow. Well, Lonnie, thank you so much for your time this morning, and uh, and I do appreciate you sharing the story, and and uh, you know, thank you for for what you're doing for for the people that uh, uh, are the silent victims. Oh, thank you very much. It was my pleasure to share my story, and I I hope that it helps at least one victim of an of an, an event.
Thank you.